0: Medical professionals are trained to detect and address pathology in the body. In the absence of pathology, a condition of health is usually concluded. But is health simply the absence of illness? And is an approach to health that sees longevity at any price as its greatest goal, truly promoting a healthy lifespan? Whether with regard to mental or physical health, an accurate definition of what is healthy has become important in recent years as the population is aging but not necessarily well. Enter the concept of flourishing, a description of those who enjoy optimal mental health, not simply freedom from mental illness. Imagine the effects of changing the job of healthcare so that it includes caring for patients' health as well as their illnesses. Welcome to the Clinicians Roundtable on Reach MD XM 233. Joining me from Atlanta is my guest, Dr. Corey Keyes. Dr. Keyes is a professor of sociology at Emory University in Atlanta where he holds a joint appointment in the Rollins School of Public Health and is an adjunct professor of psychology. He was a member of the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation Interdisciplinary Research Network on Successful Aging and a contributing author to the World Health Organization's publication on mental health promotion worldwide. His recent work includes edited volumes entitled Flourishing, Positive Psychology and the Life Well-Lived, well being, positive development through the life course, and women and depression, a handbook of medical, psychological and social perspectives. Welcome Dr. Keys. Thank you for having me. Dr. Keys, what is flourishing?
1: Uh flourishing is what I would I call true mental health. It consists of symptoms of emotional, psychological and social well being. To be flourishing conceptually means that you are you have a certain emotional zest or happiness that you derive from life. We experience positive emotions on a more or less regular basis. But it's not just feeling good. It is also that you are functioning well as an individual and as a member of community groups. So you have high levels of psychological and social well-being.
0: And who is it that flourishes best? Hmm.
1: Well, kids do better than adults. Not that I want to start intergenerational debates here, but I think it suggests something about what it means to be an adult in America these days. But besides that, not it's in adulthood, it turns out that we find that flourishing between the ages of 25 and 74 increases with age, which is good news, Mm -hmm. which is another way of saying that the youngest adults between the ages of 25 and about uh, 40 are least likely to be flourishing after that age from about 40 to 74. The risks, so to speak, or the chances of flourishing increase.
0: Well, it'll be very interesting if you can tease apart what the factors are within and without that cause us to have that dip in those middle years.
1: Ah, we have some uh, suspects. One has been this concept of a new stage of life that has been sandwiched in between adolescence and the start of adulthood. And it's called emerging adulthood. A colleague in psychology named Jeff Arnett coined the term, and he Found that in recent decades in our society there is a period of emerging adulthood where young adults are not are no longer kids they're not adolescents but they're not quite considered full blown adults and that's a period roughly between 18 to 27. That period is also associated with the fact that we now have a, a, a later age of marriage so we've delayed marriage more kids are going to school and it's a it's an in between period where we're neither no longer a child, but not quite an adult. And it proves to be a pretty stressful period.
0: Yes, it must be. Yes. You you talked about age. What about differences in mental health between races, genders, and educational levels?
1: Ah, yes. We have found, as one might suspect, that flourishing decreases as educational attainment decreases. And this is a very common finding in, in all societies, which is to say that there's a socioeconomic gradient of health. It's the same gradient we find with mental health, that low income and low education makes it much more difficult for people to develop the capacities and their capabilities to flourish. However, things get very interesting when you look at differences by racial ethnic group in in America. And we predicted this, but it is something called the paradox of race and health. In the research literature, we know that blacks compared to whites are exposed to a whole host of socioeconomic inequalities, and they're exposed to markedly higher levels of discrimination. They report that, and you could, and their studies showing it objectively. That shows up on the physical side when you look at comparisons between blacks and whites, because whites live longer lives on average, and they live it with fewer chronic physical diseases. But when you look at mental health or mental illness, The research literature was suggesting that blacks have lower rates of any anxiety disorder, any mood disorder, and any substance abuse or dependence disorder. And then when we began to do our studies on positive mental health, the presence and absence of flourishing, we found that blacks, there are more African-Americans flourishing than, than white, which was an... An amazing finding, but what it suggests is there's a tremendous amount of resilience on the mental health side in the African-American population, and I'm suggesting we need to begin to study that so we can learn more about what it means to flourish.
0: Dr. Keyes, one of your articles cites this fact. In the U.S., mental illness is the third most costly medical condition. I'm not sure that even those in the medical community appreciate the enormous cost of mental illness. How does it compare to other disorders?
1: Well... Uh, at the top of the list, the last time I looked, and I'm sure it's still today, the, top, the most costly condition is any cardiovascular disease. And this is true of, in most countries. Heart disease is not only the leading killer, so to speak, it is also the most costly. But followed closely by that in the United States are the costs associated with rehabilitation due to injury and accident and disease. But I, you're right. I think people would not have predicted that mental disorders come in a close third to the costs associated with cardiovascular disease and rehabilitation. And in fact, markedly more than things such as stroke, cancers, and HIV/AIDS. So, and this is a finding that has probably become more common since 1996, when the WHO, that is the World Health Organization, published the first and a very historic report called the Global Burden of Disease Study, where it showed not just in America, but in developed and developing countries. Mental disorders were the second leading cause of disability and shortened life in the population. So we have learned a lot in the last 10 years that mental illnesses cost our society a lot of money.
0: Yeah, and that the high prevalence of mental illness... Contributes to the high costs, um, but let's sort of address this more subtle approach that you take to looking at mental health and how that also affects costs of treatment. So that it really would be beneficial for us to understand mental health better and approach things from a positive direction.
1: Well, at the moment, we have not done the health economic studies that can really put a dollar sign if you will, associated with languishing and moderate mental health and flourishing. But we have associated all of those uh, differentiations that, with the things that health economists might put into their model, such as disability, lost days of work, heart disease, chronic physical disease, and healthcare utilization, medical visit, prescription use, and overnight hospitalizations, all of those things that lead to higher costs, both direct for treatment as well as indirect costs are lowest in those adults that I diagnose as flourishing. And anything less than that, those adults who are moderately mentally healthy, you would think that's good enough. But all of those things, hospitalizations, prescription use, medical visits, disability, missed days of work go up in those who are even moderately mentally healthy. And it gets even worse for those who are languishing, suggesting that if we want to talk about health care and changes to our system, we need to do more than just the financing and insurance. We need to talk about dealing with and promoting and maintaining true health.
0: This summer, Dr. Keyes, you will be a keynote speaker along with the Dalai Lama at a conference in Sydney, Australia, on happiness and its causes. That will, I, I imagine, be a different crowd from the researchers at the scientific conferences that you usually address. Will you present your ideas a little differently,
1: do you think? Uh, yes, I will, but not not terribly differently. The audience there will be a, an entire cross-section of people uh, From those who are interested in spirituality, from Buddhism to any tradition, to those in the helping professions, I'm told that a good deal of social workers will be there, those clinical counselors, youth counselors, but there will also be researchers from all walks of of life, so to speak, and all backgrounds there as well. So it will be a very diverse and mixed audience, and I'm looking very forward to it, because The chance to speak to an audience of that background is very exciting because you can plant these ideas that suddenly become a social movement.
0: It seems like a great opportunity to especially talk about that dip in flourishing um, that happens after our children get out of middle school age.
1: Yes, and in fact, uh, many people may not know this, but the Dalai Lama has been working on an educational initiative to teach more compassion in school. And when the Dalai Lama and the Buddhists talk about compassion, they're talking about a way of life that uh, we see fewer differences between each other, and they're trying to cultivate in children early on this sense that we are not all that different, Um, which is not to say that they want to obliterate cultural differences or heritage. What they're trying to do is create a sort of openness of the heart and mind to understanding each other. That I applaud because I think we are missing that in our children and it shows up even worse as adults.
0: You know, I wonder if that might be one of the many factors that is stressful for people as they leave kind of the cocoon of their early childhood years and enter the larger world.
1: Yes, uh, I. Th- it is very hard I and mean, you, you can talk to people on the street about, you know, especially in in America right now, with all the problems, we feel a a high level of threat. And and there's a level of malaise and insecurity. And it all started with 9-11, but it hasn't stopped there. There's been lots of other crises, the most recent of which is the Virginia Tech shootings. It's got everyone thinking that somebody walking next to them could potentially be somebody who might lose it. So it makes it a very difficult place in which to reach out and make human contact. Yet we humans need to each other, we need to enjoy each other's company, we learn from each other, and most of all, we need the love of each other.
0: And that will be the message that you leave the audience with this summer?
1: Yes, I know that sound doesn't sound terribly scientific, but there's plenty <laughs> of evidence uh, Both the Dalai Lama preaches this, and there are scholars out there who have been studying the effects of love, love in terms of making connections with people and caring for them. And it's quite compelling evidence now that Caring for others, volunteering, caring, and showing love leads not only to longer lives, but to healthier lives. So there is something to the message we could use a little more love in this world. I think also there's plenty of research now um, being done that links these things, these so-called warm and fuzzy concepts that make us human, like love, to biological processes. And so I think it's going to be a matter of time before you see the traditional biomedical community understanding more about what it means to have human contact and, for instance, the doctor-patient encounter. But, so there is uh, a great deal of work ahead of us, but it seems clear that we're making progress.
0: Yes. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MDXM 233 the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Corey Keyes, professor of sociology at Emory University. Thank you for the discussion, Dr. Keyes.
1: You're most welcome.
0: For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.